Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, July 25th. And for Desiree Frazier, I'm Kevin Farrell. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Coming up in the show, today would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday. And sometime in the coming hours, President Joe Biden is expected to declare several sites linked to his murder as national landmarks. Then Governor Tate Reeves is requesting a federal disaster declaration for areas hit by a wave of severe storms last month. Plus, a professor from the University of Southern Mississippi shares his experience on the deepest drilling expedition of all time. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Emmett Till was 14 years old when he was lynched by several white men in Mississippi. Today would have been his 82nd birthday. President Joe Biden is expected to designate a national monument at three historic sites to honor the legacy of Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, whose stories help ignite the civil rights movement. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Daphne Chamberlain, Associate Professor of History at Tougaloo College, about how this can help preserve the legacy of the Tills. Monuments have several purposes, but ultimately, um, for me, they hold historical significance uh, with regards to how we remember an event, person, or um, historic issues that have taken place over time. And what does it say when there's an intentional decision made to designate a monument, to erect a, a monument? What does that say? I think that's a powerful stance that's that's being taken, especially in a case such as this, as we look all of these years, 60-plus years forward after the, uh, after the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. But what it does is to say that there is value in that story, that we should lift up the names of those who have been impacted by racial violence and also lift up the memories of Emmett Lewis Hill, who was 14 years old when he was killed, but also the legacy and the hard work that his mother put forth to seek justice for the murder of her son. And in your opinion, your expertise, how important was Mamie Till's work in seeking justice for her son in the larger civil rights movement of the time? I think when we look at just the bravery of a mother, of course, she only showed a mother's love, um, which was selfless. It moved beyond just her son. And I think the work that she started all of those years ago to get justice for her 14-year-old son is what we have seen even in recent years, probably over the past decade, with many black mothers who um, have sought justice in the murders of their sons. So what she did then laid the foundation for the bravery, the outspokenness, but also the tenacity and the persistence that women have chosen to stand on and seeking justice, not just for the murder of Emmett Till, but even when we think about the murder of Trayvon Martin, when we think about the murder of uh, Tamir Rice in Ohio, Eric Garner, um, George Floyd, and so many others that have happened since uh, Emmett Till. But I think that, that her role is so critical in history because it's still relevant even in the 21st century. Something that I've somewhat been wondering, I know that there are still several monuments across Mississippi that honor the Confederate history and I guess the economic backbone of of that being slavery and sharecropping and things like that. What does it say, I guess, that in Mississippi there will be both a national monument towards Emmett Till and and his mother and in their memory and also these at the same time? Does that kind of complicate the narrative on monuments in the state in any way? 
I don't think that it complicates the narrative. I think what it does is provide for a more comprehensive and inclusive uh, historical story of, of the history found here in the state of Mississippi, um, where there are so many more stories that have gone um, gone untold and have really remained in, remained in obscurity. Um, this is an opportunity for us to think about how do we remember these events, whether it be through monuments, whether it be through print materials that capture these histories, whether it be through documentary films, or whether it be just through local oral history projects. But I think that it, it really does speak to the need for us to look, look deeply at many stories, um, because I don't think that it's a complicated narrative. What it does is it just share this rich narrative of the history found here in the state of Mississippi when you add all of these other elements that have not been tapped into. And why do you think the decision to designate three national monuments for Emmett and Mamie Till is being made now almost, uh, excuse me, more than 60 years after his death? Why now? I guess the question is why, why not now? Um, of course, this should have been done. So this, this is a, a process that is, um, or a designation is long overdue, um, especially when we think about how long Mamie Till fought to, um, bring justice to the murder of her son, even up until her death. I think that when we look at 2023 and especially all that has happened over the past decade or so, as I mentioned earlier, um, it's critical that we have these these places in which we can remember Emmett Till because Emmett Till can be seen in so many people who are so many young men, young black men we've lost um, over the years. But um, I'm going to just I'm gonna give a quote that I think is, is a really powerful and poignant statement that Mamie Till gave as she stood before an audience in an NAACP rally. She said, you know, she thought that uh, she was exempt from any of the racial violence that existed in the world that she was living in in the 1950s. And, of course, she didn't think that anything that she knew that happened to African-Americans in the state of Mississippi. She didn't think that that could happen to her, of course, until her son came to Mississippi in the summer of 1955. And she stated in that moment that the business of one of us better become the business of all of us. So I think that that, that's the piece of it. When there's injustice that happens to one people, regardless of racial background or socioeconomic background or whatever kind of background, that we should all see the humanity and what has happened to that person or whatever or whatever the incident may be to be able to care and be compassionate enough to stand alongside that person to bring call attention to the issue. The designation of a national monument, if you could speak to what that really means when that decision is made. I, I'm aware of some natural areas that have been designated that, not something that's specific to to this, which would be a moment in history into two individuals. What what significance does that have that the National Park Service, the federal government are making this designation? What this designation means, and of course it is one that is being done by the federal government, is that the federal government acknowledges that there was an injustice done during a period of history that was extremely turbulent for this country with regard to race relations. And I think that, that that's a pretty strong statement that um, 
is being made under this presidential administration to say that we acknowledge the life of Emmett Till and Mamie Till, um, that we acknowledge the hard work that Mamie Till put forth to um, try to bring closure to the murder of her son, but then the hard work and legacy that she left behind to make sure that people continue to lift up the name Emmett Till and be sure that anybody else impacted by such um, crimes were um, that those crimes were given attention and, and, and paid attention to by the U.S. Department of Justice. But I think that it's, it's an acknowledgement of the history that um, that we often don't want to confront, uh, but at the same time, it's an acknowledgement that we need to engage in critical conversations about race and uh, racism, but also engage in critical conversations about racial healing. Daphne Chamberlain is an associate professor of history at Tougaloo College. Coming up, the governor is requesting a major disaster declaration for an outbreak of tornadoes last month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In for Desiree Frazier, I'm Kevin Farrell. Governor Tate Reeves is requesting a major disaster declaration for several counties hit by an outbreak of tornadoes last month. The declaration would cover several counties, with Jackson and Jasper counties needing individual assistance, and a total of 16 counties needing public assistance for debris removal. Our Will Stribling speaks with Mallory White, spokesperson with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. She says the request could help recoup some of the costs associated with disasters. So 19 tornadoes, that is not the type of record-breaking we would like to have in Mississippi. But unfortunately, a majority of those happen right there in that time frame of June 14th through the 19th. So that just goes to show you just never know because June is typically um, not an active month for tornadoes. And so we have been dealt a, a another blow to our state. We are still recovering from the March 24th tornadoes and now we are going into now we have another disaster request for what has happened in June. Um, but we plan for this and we have a number of mechanisms that we can bring in if we need assistance with handling the caseload for individuals or for the counties and cities whenever they need assistance. Uh, and what are those mechanisms? What does that look like? Could you just simplify it for me if, if possible? Yeah, so we have a wonderful program, and you saw it actually during the Jackson Water Crisis, the EMAC program. So it's the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, where we can actually send out a request from other states and ask them to send their experts to us. And so we have that program available to us after the March 24th tornadoes. We had some wonderful um, folks from Florida come up to assist us. And so we have the capability. And then now if we get this major disaster declaration um, from June 14th through the 19th, we'll have FEMA on the ground with us. And we already have FEMA on the ground uh, with the March 24th tornadoes. And they rolled in with a small army of about 500 people willing and ready to help us. And so we are grateful for the assistance that FEMA can give us, not only financially, but with the personnel as well. And can you just tell me like what the process is? 
is now that he's, you know, he's requested this major disaster declaration. So what has to take place for that to be granted when it is? What happens as far as as getting relief to to folks that need it? Yeah. So now um, it's in the president's hands and the president is not on a timeline. He can take as much time as he wants. We've seen declaration requests be approved within a week, but we've also seen them been approved within two months, three months down the road. Um, And so it is up to the president now. And so a lot of times you'll see um, letters from our congressional delegation um, asking the president for assistance. And so we anticipate that to happen as well. Um, They have been very supportive of our agency and always asking what ways can we help. And um, they always show their support. And so now it's up to the president. Um, And like I said, he's on his own timeline. Um, So now it's a waiting game. But one thing I want to make sure that people are aware of is in in the press release that went out, whenever we talk about individual assistance and public assistance, those are two very different things. Um, The only citizens that could get financial assistance are the citizens that live in Jasper County and in Jackson County, because those are the only two counties that we requested for individual assistance. Those other counties that were mentioned in the press release, we are requesting assistance for public assistance. That means for rebuilding public infrastructure, roads, bridges that were damaged, or public buildings that were damaged because of the storm. So I want to make that distinction very clear, that individual assistance, that's for the homeowners. Public assistance is for your public buildings. Mallory White is a spokesperson with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Coming up, a uh, Mississippi professor shares their experience on a groundbreaking geological research mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms, and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, relatively speaking. Southern Remedy. Kids and teens. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. Southern Remedy is Mississippi Public Broadcasting's premier show about you and your health, featuring doctors and nurses from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Each weekday at 11, we discuss different health care topics right here on MPB Think Radio. It's a production of Mississippi, Mississippi Public, Public Broadcasting, Broadcasting Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio. Tune in every weekday at 11 for the full every Southern Remedy Every weekday morning lineup. at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In for Desiree Frazier today, I'm Kevin Farrell. Researchers aboard the Jody's Resolution drilling ship have been able to mine down into the earth deeper than ever before. The ship has served as a mobile research vessel for decades and up until recently had only been able to reach depths of 200 meters below the sea floor. But this summer, the team was able to reach a staggering 1,300 meters below the sea floor. And that was enough to mine rocks from the earth's upper mantle for the first time. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Jeremy Deans, Associate Professor of Geology at the University of Southern Mississippi. He was part of the 111-person team helping with the International Ocean Discovery Program. For this expedition, we went into the Mid-Atlantic Ocean along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge where two plates are spreading apart and creating a plate tectonic boundary. And we had a couple objectives. One was just to learn more about the oceanic crust and how it forms. 
We were also trying to study fluid flow and exchange. So as seawater interacts with the oceanic crust, it exchanges heat and chemicals, and that exchange can also uh, feed life. So there's life at the seafloor, but then also underground below the seafloor. So we were trying to look to see at sort of the limits of life, what was living down there, and how it all tied together with crustal formation. And this expedition was able to get deeper than ever before. Is that correct? Yes. So the rocks there are part of uh, the mantle. So the earth has three main layers. We have the crust, which is what we live on, the mantle, which is the largest layer, and then the core. And so the mantle is usually covered by the crust, so we can't usually get to it. There are some areas you can, uh, but this is one of the areas where it's more or less closest to its original location. And so we drilled into these rocks, expecting to only go about 200 meters from the seafloor down. And that's what's been done before, because uh, these rocks can be very difficult to drill. The hole can collapse. You know, it's, it's just the conditions are difficult. But it kept drilling, and it didn't collapse. It kept going and going till close to uh, 1,300 meters deep. So it's more than a kilometer deeper than uh, the deepest hole drilled so far. So. Well, I can imagine y'all are still working to, you know, really assess everything that y'all uncovered. What were some of the things that you found interesting as y'all were continuing to dig? You know, we recover most of the rocks. We have so much work to do on the ship. We have a team of about 25 to 30 scientists that do the basic descriptions. Um, But in a year, all these samples will be available to anyone to study. So any of the reports we write, any of the rocks are open access, which is not very common in science. Um, So that's one of the great things about this program. In a 200-meter section, that's not a lot for the Earth that's over 3,000 kilometers down. So just seeing what's there, the variety, um, the different processes. I mean, the first thing that you see is the color changes, the texture changes, the minerals change, the grain size change. So there's just so much to study. As a geologist, what do you think this could mean for continuing scientific research in this field? And do you think it has any applications for people outside of this field in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think on a fundamental side, the crust comes from the mantle. So if we want to understand more about the stuff that we live on, we have to understand the mantle. Primary processes of the earth is what we're trying to study. But a lot of the fluid circulation, I mean, that leads into the beginning of life. You know, these tiny microbes that live in these extreme environments uh, is thought to be potentially where things started. And then also there's some economic potentials as well, because as fluids move around, they can move metals. So we found not economic deposits, but some deposits of things like copper and iron, underwater mining of these nodules. That's what these systems can can lead to. So there's a lot of interest on, on that side as well. I think it's incredible that y'all were able to find or even look for signs of life at that depth. You know, I feel like 1,300 meters, when you just say it out loud, it doesn't sound like that much, but that's enormous. What would be your words of putting this into perspective? Life, um, you know, as they say in Jurassic Park, finds a way. But I think life really is limited more on to a temperature than a depth. So right now, we've identified life that uh, even lives above boiling uh, water. So that would be 100 degrees Celsius. So there's some life that live up to about 122 degrees centigrade. And so these rocks at these levels, because of the seawater at the seafloor is 
four degrees Celsius is mixing with these rocks and cooling the rocks down, um, so that can make it more habitable. So as long as the microbes have, you know, things like hydrogen or methane or sulfur that they can metabolize and the temperature is below 120 degrees centigrade, they they seem to be happy. They're going to be there. You spoke to this earlier, but can you talk about the challenges that come with being able to drill this deep? We have a GPS and engines all around the ship that keep us in place, you know, because we're, we're drilling, so we, we can't move too far away or the drill string will break. So we have to stay very close. And of course, you've got the swell moving up and down. You've got waves pushing you. So you have to really work hard to keep yourself in place. And then the drilling, um, I mean, you pretty much have a, a piece of spaghetti going through the ship. And so things break. Um, on our first attempt to drill these rocks, the uh, drill string got stuck, and we had to use dynamite to to blow the drill string, you know, apart. But then the second time, we it just happened to work out correctly. So the drill bits have to be very strong. The piping has to be correct. The way they, you know, lubricate and pump water down. I mean, the whole process, the the people working on the ship, it's like an art form, the way they're so efficient and the way they do this. It's it's very impressive. What do you think is the future for these ultra-deep geological surveys? Do you think we're going to be able to see another one like this in the future anytime soon, or do you think this is a one-in-a-million chance that y'all were able to get so deep? Yeah, so there's a couple things at play there. So one of the big issues is that as scientists, we have to propose these expeditions, and then the community has to review them, and then the ship goes all over the world. So, you know, the ship's in the Atlantic Ocean right now, so if you want to go drill something in the Indian Ocean, you have to wait for the ship to get over there. Um, So it can take uh, quite a bit of time. And if there isn't consensus with the scientific community to do this, then not going to, you know, be approved. And I think because most of the previous expeditions that tried to drill these rocks were not as successful, we didn't get as deep. I think there was a general assumption that that's just the way these rocks are and we're never going to get a deep hole. You never know until you try. So we just got very lucky. And as I mentioned before, we were only expecting to go 200 meters down and we just kind of hit the right spot. Um, so a lot of it's luck. You just don't know what you're going to get until you try. And that's all part of scientific discovery, but that's sometimes hard to sell. The other problem is that NSF, the National Science Foundation, has cut the program. So the drilling ship I was on is going to be retired because it's aging and costing too much to operate. But the idea was to get a new ship, but NSF has uh, said no. So um, the ship will run until next year, um, and they've said that the timing is about 15 to 20 years before we might get a new ship. So really, any time soon, getting these rocks is, is not going not gonna to happen, unfortunately. Well, pardon the pun, but this sounds like some truly groundbreaking research that y'all are doing right now. Jeremy Deans is an associate professor of geology at the University of Southern Mississippi. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.